I think the reason why this place is such a joyous place is because we all love the Word of God so much. And you know that in Acts chapter 7, where we are today, I really hope that you're fired up and ready to get to communion, because it's going to take a while before we get to communion. So I hope all you socialites are ready. If you have to do bathroom breaks or get up and exercise, today might be one of those services. Acts chapter 7, my section today is only 50 verses long. So on behalf of every pastor that's ever gone before you, last week Brother Bill did like an hour and a half in 15 verses, which was fabulous, Brother Bill, thank you that. Chapter 6 is a beautiful chapter, but I have 50 verses. And as you know, because of these beautiful little implements, 50 verses might take a while. So I'm going to use some spiritual liberty this morning to condense and to speak. But the reality of today is Acts chapter 7 is one of the most pivotal parts of the book of Acts. It's, uh, it's been an incredible run for the church. The book of Acts has been incredible. And if you've been with us, you already know that. Uh, it's the beginning of the church. We are the church. And so we're the remnants of this church that started some 2,000 years ago. And so to know what our brothers and sisters experienced 2,000 years ago and how they, from the very beginning, saw God moving and using all things, the reality of today is this guy Stephen's being introduced. We got the last part of chapter 6 that Stephen was going to solve this problem of the Hellenistic widows who are not being serviced properly. And so the church seeing that there was a conundrum or a problem or an issue and said, how can we address the issues that happen naturally within a church? They said, well, let's gather some people together, some wise people together, and let's delegate. And let's let the church be a little bit more by doing some of the daily stuff with this group of people. And so from that, we get the introduction to Stephen. And Stephen actually becomes the first deacon. Now, I don't know about you guys if you know about deacons, but this church is blessed to have some amazing deacons, and deacons can be both male and female, and in this church, some of the incredible deacons are Charlie. You guys see Charlie out there in the front every week. His ministry, yes, let's take a moment to recognize some of our incredible deacons. That ministry that he does, the deacons are going to be known for doing, so when it comes to kind of understanding the, I think Ken used a picture, a little bit earlier picture of our group, the congregational meeting there. Um, that might have been a few years before me, maybe Pastor Lee's group, but um, in the Pastor Lee and Pastor Lee, I, it just seems weird. I just, it is what it is, but we have, we have elders and we have deacons, and so the idea that Stephen was introduced last week as the first deacon, I just want to explain to you, deacons do. So anyone, like the women's ministry, Jeannie and, and Diane and Jackie, the, those women do. They're doing ministry. They would be deaconesses, right? The donut ministry, you're saying, well, how important is that? Well, Kelly and Steve, every week, think about themes and genres and all these incredible things to bless you guys so that they can do. They serve you, right? And so what, what happens is some people kind of then look at the church like, okay, there's the elders, and it sounds like they're elder, so they're older. It must be more important. And the deacons, they're just what... It's not. This is church hierarchy, right? There's only one high in the church hierarchy. That's the word God, our Father, Jesus, God. That's it, okay? The rest of us are working as a team to divide and conquer. And what were they trying to divide and conquer? The doing of the ministry, deacons do, and then the elders, what we call elding or leading. So anytime you see someone teaching or leading, it's an indication of, of kind of eldership. And it's so important because the church has had this incredible run. 
the first five chapters, pretty much they're just going and growing. And Peter, who went from this kind of lying failure guy, Peter has turned out to be this incredible speaker, and God's using him. And every time he speaks, the word of God encourages people, and you see the kingdom of God growing. And then all of a sudden, we get to this first little conundrum where some people sell some property and they present this beautiful potential offering to the church, but it's not the fullness of what they say, yet they're saying it's the fullness. And they turn out that the church has to find out something, that if you lie to God, there are serious repercussions for that. Anyway, the church continues to work through that all the way through the idea of this chapter 6 where once again another conundrum or an issue comes up. And now there's favoritism. Well, some widows are being fed and some widows are not being fed. What do we do? And the church says, okay, we're going to come together and we're going to address it. And I think that's really, really important before we get to the heart of the message today, church, is that we hear what the Word of God is saying. In this life, you will have problems, all right? Our goal is not to avoid the problems, but when they do come up is to try to address them so that we can, as elders, continue teaching and leading our primary call to ministry, and as deacons, continue to do the work that's required every single day. For what reason? So that the church can move along. And I just wanted to make note here, the idea of the attributes of a deacon are very specific, okay? Uh, and it talks about Stephen being someone who is full of spirit and full of wisdom. And if you look at the parameters today for the attributes of a deacon or an elder, they're the same. So please, don't think of anyone in the ministry as higher or lower. Think of us all as working together to accomplish the will of God. And because of that, no one role is any more or less important. They are all significant, and they are all crucial to getting the work done that God has required for us. And with that in mind, as chapter 6 kind of ends and begins, we end, like I said, with the beginning of Stephen being introduced. And because he did his job so well, I mean, he's brand new. He's a, like the first volunteer that's kind of going into leadership. He's actually being seized by the end of chapter 6 by the Sanhedrin once again, who's now going to make some very serious accusations. And we'll see those accusations begin when I begin the first part of chapter 7. Now, I just want to take another brief moment before I kind of get started here and pray, and then just ask you guys to make this consideration. Has there ever been a time in your life where someone has made an accusation, a false accusation against you? So as I get ready to pray this morning, I want you to be thinking about that and realize that this is a false accusation against a man of God who's simply doing what God asked him to do. And we're going to see what he does, and we're going to watch how he responds. And hopefully today, that will both be an encouragement to you and a way for you to learn and maybe model for yourself biblical response to when attacks come. Father God, I thank you for the morning. I thank you for the opportunity that each week prepares and just studying and seeing God's word. And I know that each week it's going to be a struggle just to get here. And I know that it's a holiday weekend. It's a Super Bowl weekend. It's traffic. It's a, 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 something in the weather. It's just you know, all these different things are trying to distract us from the encouragement that comes from the word of God. And chapter 7 is so important because this guy, this deacon, this doer of God's word was just trying to assist in getting the widow's food. And yet through that ministry, you've provided him with this opportunity to speak to the Sanhedrin, to speak to the highest level of authority in the land. And I just find the empowerment of what comes from this man's mouth so encouraging that we, jars of clay, Father, can be used to support and speak the truth of your kingdom, Father. What a privilege this morning is as we prepare our hearts for communion and all the different things that are available today. I pray that first and foremost, Father, you would just remind us that if we are truly followers of Christ, then we will have advers adversaries in this world, and we're not to be afraid, and we're not to kowtow, and we're not to hide, but Father, we are to hold fast in the truth that is the Spirit of God. May everything that we say and do this morning bring honor and glory through your Son, Jesus Christ. Amen.
So let me just say this. Stephen, first deacon, right? He's not just going to be the first deacon. He's going to be the first of many things. He's actually going to transition from a deacon to being called in front of the Sanhedrin to being, for me, was one of the most powerful pastoral messages recorded. And I can tell you that simply by this. This is the longest passage in Acts chapter 7, the most verses. And this is by far and away the most proficient apology, apologetic, apologia, depending on how you want to read it in Greek, given in the New Testament. So the idea of an apologetic comes from 1 Peter 3. And there, the concept there would be we're told to always have a defense of what we believe. Now, if you don't understand how that works and kind of what it is, it's not an attacking defense. This would be like a lawyer who simply studied the information and made, made sure that he not only knows what he's about to say, but can present that in such a way that it's an overwhelming truth. And literally what Stephen is about to give during his defense is one of the most powerful histories in the Old Testament. He's going to exclusively use the Old Testament because that's what they have. And he's going to focus on what's called the Pentateuch or the Torah, the first five books, because remember, the church is almost exclusively Jewish at this time, right? The early church is exclusively Jewish, and this is what they know. They know those first five books. They don't have the fullness of Scripture, but they know those first five books well. So he's going to start with the history of that. I mentioned to you the fact that during prayer that sometimes in life for doing God's will, for speaking God's will, we're going to receive an attack. I want to ask you this morning, has there been a time in your life when you have been attacked? Now, it's from my own life a couple of different times that it's happened in my life, but I was thinking about one in my life that happened to my brother. My brother was uh, in a situation where he was in management at a building in, uh, in Long Beach, and he was doing really well, and he was getting promoted. And all of a sudden, the, ma the management company that he was working for said, we had a store that was struggling, and we would like to transfer you to the store to get them kind of going in the right direction. He was transferred to the store, which was quite some distance from his house, and he was willing to go. But unfortunately, that store had someone that they wanted to be promoted. So the day that my brother arrived, from within the first 15 minutes of arriving in that building, he was facing animosity and hostility. During the next few three or four days at the building, he continued to try to organize and guide and direct people and get the building going in the way that it should, calling a couple meetings here and there like any new manager would do. Unfortunately, an incident happened where each uh, register has a camera over the top of it, and each register has someone that if they have a situation or a return, they have to call them, a person, a manager in to sign off. Something happened, and a manager had to be called in. My brother was called in, and during the two minutes that he was interacting with the individual at the register, an accusation was made. Now, the accusation was not only true, but it was actually filmed under the camera under each thing and could have been dispersed very quickly. But during the time it took to actually call a meeting, to organize the people, and have all these accusations presented, it actually went to court. And I remember spending time with my brother and my wife. I remember all of us spending time with him and sitting in kind of room and thinking, what happened? All you were doing was a good thing. All you were doing is what you were asked to do, and you were doing it. But because they didn't want you there, they were able to make this false accusation. Now, obviously, by the time the camera was, the video was played, it, it proved that it wasn't true. But it had been said long enough that the integrity was, you know, cannibalized in that thing. And he walked away, not only from that job, but he walked away from that industry. And to this date, when I think about stuff like that, and I think about Stephen, I just wanted to make sure yourself, I'm about to give you an individual who all he did was answer the call. All he did was like you was saying, there was a need in the church. Would someone in the church meet it? The people in the church rallied and said, well, this is a good individual. This is a strong individual. They put these individuals together, and he then addresses the need. Feeding the widows. It was just favoritism in the widows, a simple request, but nonetheless, an issue in the church, still important. And for addressing that simple issue, Stephen is now going to be brought to the highest level of kind of the Sanhedrin of law, 
And now he's going to be able to, like I said, when I get to chapter 7, the first line is, are these accusations true? He's going to have to defend himself for something he hasn't done. And so I just kind of told myself, you know, what do you say to someone in a situation like that? Don't you wish there was something you could actually say to someone? I'm going to share with you a verse at the end of the passage that is biblically speaking from the scriptures. It's something you should absolutely say. And something I believe that God actually said to Stephen he wanted Stephen to realize something, that as a follower of Christ, this is part of what goes with parcel and picture. If you're going to follow Christ, they will hate you. They will chasten you, and they will go after your credit. And by the way, that's a good reminder for us why the Bible says that we don't take the account of one. Any accusation that comes, you go biblically, you go one-on-one, -on -one, you go two-on-one, you go three-on-one. There's a whole biblical process for how we do that, but we never want to take the accusation of one because in the end, if you're trying to live for the Lord or speak for the Lord, the chances of you being put in a really difficult situation are high. And Stephen does this, and he's going to be made four accusations he's going to have to remedy. Four. Each one of the accusations in and of itself is worth stoning. So it's blasphemy, right? It's to speak against. They're going to make the claim that he speaks against Moses. Because they only have the Old Testament, because they're focused on those first five books... Moses to them is the central figure. So anything that Moses says or does in any way or any capacity, if you say anything potentially against it, blasphemy. They're going to say it's against God too because, because it's against Moses and Moses was speaking on God's behalf, they're also going to make that. They're also going to say that he's doing things against the law, which there's 600 of those, so lots of different opportunities to say he's speaking against the law. And the temple as well. Now, it's an interesting thing how important the temple is because in each one of his defenses, as he responds, he's going to be trying to address one of those four things. Either this is how something comparative to Moses. This is how God actually speaks in this truth. So keep that in mind. Moses, God, the law, and the temple. And in order to do this, like I said, they gave false witness. They got, they got people to say things that were not true that Jesus was going to destroy the temple, and you can't destroy the place where God lives. Remember, they're going to think that the temple is a place that David wanted to make, that Solomon actually builds, and the whole point of that was to create a place in the Holy of Holies where God could reside. And so he's going to speak against that in each accusation. That's not where God resides today, nor has he from the beginning. Now, in this time, the Holy Spirit has already been speaking through different people. The Sadducees are already pretty fired up, and so um, I'm thinking back to chapter 4. You remember the last time the Sadducees, they had an issue with angels and resurrection? Remember what happened in chapter 4? The jailbreak? And what did they tell them that happened? An angel came down there so that they could be recently... So, okay, we've already seen that God has already been speaking to Israel directly. Every time they have an issue, he speaks to them directly. So for them to have these last four issues, it seems to me like God is trying to, once again, Israel, if you would just listen, if you would just be paying attention to what's about to be said to you, you could make it through. But they're not only not going to listen, but instead, as the passage ends, they fix their gaze at Stephen and kind of like this, if looks could kill, we're, I hope you can read the room, Stephen. And what do they get in response? It says, they looked upon him and his, def and his defense was what? His face was like an angel. Now, I'm one of those people that sometimes the word of God speaks clearly and you see it and other times it's just kind of whatever. But I remember reading that this week and I was thinking, when is the last time in the Bible that someone's face looked like an angel? Remember, they only have the first five books, right? But remember when Moses had the encounter with God and his face shone like an angel, like it was so bright, like you put it in the... And I couldn't help but think about sometimes this, it's like, this is another opportunity because he hasn't given any defense yet, right? His only defense now is he's standing accused in front of them. But here, here's a little insight before we even get to this brilliant defense. His face, his countenance was already saying, I'm with the Lord. 
So I just want to give that to you because maybe you're thinking, well, I'm not someone who speaks eloquently, and so giving an incredible defense may be really difficult for me. Before he speaks a word, his countenance said, I'm with the Lord, okay? That's something you can have this morning and be prepared because as we get ready to transition, like I said, I'm going to read a, a zillion passages, some more than others, and then I'll exegete, some I'll have to condense, but let's, it's really important that I get through it all and set it up for next week, so here we go. Acts chapter 7, verse 1. His defense begins. And the high priest said, Are these things so? And he said, Hear me, brethren and fathers, for the God of glory appeared to our father Abraham when he was in Mesopotamia, before he lived in Haran. And he said to him, Leave your country and your relatives and come into the land that I will show you. Then he left the land of the Chaldeans and settled in Haran. From there, after his father died, God had him move to this country in which you are now living. And he gave to him no inheritance, not even a foot of the ground. And yet when he had no child, he promised him something that he would give to him as a possession, this and his descendants after him. And then God spoke to this effect. And his descendants would be aliens in a foreign land, and that they would be enslaved and mistreated for 400 years. And whatever nation would be in bondage against them, that I myself will judge, said God. And after that, they will come out and serve me in this place. Verse 8. And then he gave him the covenant of circumcision. So Abraham became the father of Isaac, circumcised him on the eighth day. And then Isaac became the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of the 12 patriarchs. Okay? This defense is so brilliant. The fact that this one guy is able to say this, like I said at the end when I share with you this verse, I believe this is absolutely empowered by the Holy Spirit. But, but he's literally about to walk them through the history of the Old Testament, their Old Testament, what they know and what they understand, but from the perspective now of God, so that they can now have insight. I was talking with someone this morning, and I think one of the beautiful things about coming into faith is the spirit of, now, the spirit of God now can show you things that have been part of your life forever that you've never seen. Amen? You understand that? There's things that you can't see or can't hear until the Spirit of God is living within you. One of the beautiful things about a new believer coming to faith is they see things now. They wake up and they hear things and they see things that, that have been there the whole time, but now they don't like them. And now they realize there's something wrong. And I always tell them, that's not a bother. That's a blessing, right? That's an affirmation that the Spirit of God that you now invited in is revealing things that before were unseen. And so here's a really interesting truth. Stephen is now going to show them insight to stuff they already know. He's not going to answer guilty or not guilty. Remember, this is the first major accusation against, like, he's not a, an elder at the time. He's not a pastor. He's just a deacon. He's just a doer in the church. He's standing against the highest court, and his opening line is, are these things true? He has every right to plead the fifth or say guilty or not guilty. He doesn't even make it a consideration. He simply goes into what the spirit, I believe this, the spirit of God had to speak this. This is, church, this is so beyond brilliant that it wouldn't matter how incredible of an attorney or a lawyer had. This is, this is not an attorney or a lawyer speaking. This is just Stephen, okay? This is one chapter Stephen, the first deacon, and ultimately who will be the first martyr. Listen to what he says. Stephen's defense is brilliant because he's going to combine the truth about the Mosaic law, all the prophets of Israel, the role of their temple, 
and everything that's happened in the Old Testament Jewish history, considering ordering all those to answer the four accusations. Each one of the responses will have an answer to one of the accusations. And his first explanation is simply going to be to this, that God never asked for a temple. Okay? Israel, you have made the desire to have a temple, something that you want, but God never asked for a temple, and God has been working without a temple from the beginning. Okay? Secondly, Moses, as good as he is, and as much as you love Moses, Moses wasn't perfect. Matter of fact, Moses had major issues, along with every other patriarch I'm about to show you had major issues. That has nothing to do with whether or not God is using them, but it it does have to do with you putting one or another on a pedestal. They all have issues. That's God's blessing, is that he uses jars of clay. Additionally, this, this law that you talk about me blaspheming, not one of you has kept the law. Okay? The law has never been kept. That's not the point of the law. It can't be kept. Whether it's two laws or 600, it's impossible to keep the law. So your idea and kind of putting the law up on the high is completely wrong. If you understood who the Messiah was, you would realize he didn't come to abolish the law, but fulfill the law so we could live in grace. And ultimately, what have you, what have you actually done with everyone and everything that's been sent before you? You've rejected and killed every single person that's been sent to you on behalf of the Lord. Okay? So with that in mind, his first defense, Abraham. What should you know about Abraham? Abraham lived 650 years before the law was given. Okay? Remember, every one of the accusations has to cover one of the four blasphemies. Blasphemy of the law, blasphemy of Moses, blasphemy of God, and blasphemy of the temple. He's not picking any order how he's going to do it. He's going to give them a preponderance. He's just going to give them an overwhelming amount of information from what they know and what they believe. Abraham lived 650 years before the law was given. So how can you say in any way, shape, or form that the law is the the bottom line or the standard? Because before the law was, God was still working with people. And some of the things that God did is he worked with Abraham in Mesopotamia. Now, we're not really saying Mesopotamia every day, so where is that? It's modern-day Iraq, okay? So one of the very first movements of God recorded in the Bible with God's chosen people with God's chosen first leader, Abraham, does not occur in Israel. So for you to make Israel or Jerusalem the holy place or the sacred place or the only place where God can move, you're not even understanding who we are or how it began. It began 650 years ago in a foreign land. And when God spoke, it said that God spoke to Abraham. So it's not like Abraham didn't know who he was speaking to. He spoke with God. So God is establishing a relationship regardless of the location from the very beginning. And he's responding to this guy, hey, you with no kids, hey, you in a foreign land, and hey, you with no descendants, this is what I'm going to give to you. That's fabulous. None of it was true at the time, but it was a promise. Oh, yeah, and you will be enslaved for 400 years. The patriarch knew from the very beginning what God had promised and what they were in store for. It's not a surprise to them. And Abraham ultimately did father, exactly as God said. And Israel did become a nation enslaved for 400 years to Egypt. Everything that was said was true. But what you don't understand, that this is what we officially call a type of Christ. He's talking to the Sanhedrin. He's talking to the, These are types of Christ given to you that even though our Old Testament is void of this Messiah's name, I'm going to give you something in every single attribute of every person that has come before The attributes of what the Messiah will be and what he will do were there. So that if you were looking, you would have seen clearly. What are some of the attributes? A foreigner in a foreign land, right? Jesus coming from heaven to the earth is a foreign land. 
And what does ultimately Jesus do? Jesus becomes the father of our nation, rather than the nation. The nation that we have is our faith. And he had to sacrifice. Was Abraham willing to sacrifice? Remember Abraham's sacrifice? Everything about these types of crises, you kind of see this. And then ultimately, a covenant sign. What was the covenant sign for Abraham? Circumcision. Okay, not really the most fun topic to talk about in church, but it was relative to what it meant. It was a cutting away of the old and presenting something that made you different among society. So from this very first account, he says to them, it was there, the writing was on the wall, and you didn't listen. Verses 9 through 17, he goes, okay, so you didn't get it with Abraham. What happens next? In verses 9 through 17, he then gives them the history of Israel all the way from Jacob into Egypt. He talks about how the idea of these patriarchs became jealous of a man named Joseph and sold him into slavery, and then God stayed with him and continued to grant favor. Well, who are the patriarchs? Okay, Once Abram has his son, the patriarchs are the 12 heads of Israel's nations. Okay, These are supposed to be the godliest leaders, the guys that are going to represent God. They have a problem with one of their brothers. From the very beginning, they had a problem with one of their brothers, and they came up with a remedy. Okay, Modern-day remedy? throw them down a well, okay? That's not a really good remedy for your brother. It's actually a remedy for destruction, right? What they intended for malice, God intended for good. Church, this is another one of those bonus points inside of a message like this. This is one of those indicators. Every time, and this is going to be part of my concluding statement too, every time there's flood, famine, or destruction in your life, for you to kind of organize it like, oh, woe is me, it's never been like that from the beginning, Okay, it's not, it wasn't like that in the beginning, and it's not like that for you now. Flood, famine, cancer, destruction, failure of organs, whatever your situation is, from the beginning of time, God has been using that to move people, right? We are thick-headed, callous, stubborn individuals. We like what we like. I was talking with someone this morning. We like what we like, and I order the same thing every week from the same restaurant, and you can ask me, do you vary? No. I order the same thing at Olive Garden that I order at El Matador every time. My wife says, what are you going to get? I said, why are you asking? Okay. I'm getting the same thing I get every single time. So how is God going to move a thick-headed, stubborn person? Flood, famine, death, and destruction. And throwing your brother down a well and you and your caravan driving away thinking, we're done with that issue. Not only were they not done with that issue, but what does Joseph actually go to do? A foreigner in a foreign land, who now God uses his circumstances in a foreign land to do what? To have him trained, have him educated by his very enemies? Yeah, they see something in him and they promote him to do what? Ultimately, to rescue those who were against him. So what does this mean? A rescue in a foreign land? Does this sound familiar, church? Yes, this is a type of Christ. This is a type of Christ so that the Old Testament, who's void of the name of Jesus, can understand something. If you're looking for the Savior, if you're looking for the Messiah, he's here. He's here. Just look. And the Spirit of God will show you something so clearly that these accusations you're making are ridiculous. Okay? Joseph didn't do anything wrong. Stephen didn't do anything wrong. My brother didn't do anything wrong. And I'm sure there's times in your life where you have done nothing wrong and someone has come up against you. They've done it with me. I've had people come up against me in the church and make accusations against me. But what are we supposed to do? Run? Are we supposed to claim guilty or not guilty? Or are we supposed to hold fast to the fact that everyone who has followed Christ has had an accusation against them? 
And the whole point of that was Joseph what? So that Joseph could one day restore his family. The very family that threw him in a well? Yes. That's who our God is. And that's what our God does. Sent to rescue, to unite a family that was in total discord. Right? To, to allow one of your 12 brothers to be so disloved and so disrespected because he has favor shown to him that you want to kill him or put him out. And then that brother to come back to bring unity and to bring respect to your clan is what? It's an act of God. Joseph wasn't enough. Well, who's next in the account? Verses 18 through 22. How about the birth of this guy named Moses? You guys like him? What was happening during Moses' time? The king had made a mandate to kill all the, uh, the children exposing the children to be killed. So God does something and allows Moses to be spared. They place him in a, a wicker basket, place him upon the river. The Pharaoh's daughter, the Pharaoh, I mean, the one who's making the edict to kill all the people, the daughter finds him. She not only takes him in, but she, she raises him. So here's Moses in a foreign land, being raised by God's enemies, being trained by God's enemies to do what? To rescue those who don't know they need to be rescued. Moses, was he a good guy, solid all the way through? No, as we read the rest of Moses' account, Moses has some serious issues, including taking a rock to somebody's head who was attacking an Israelite. And he didn't do it in a kind, mannerly fashion. He did it in an aggressive, I need to protect, and whatever it takes, I'm going to do. But all these different things are types of Christ. They're ways that people can see the rescue of God and people who would reject God ultimately reject him to the point that even understanding why is it they were so against Moses? Why are they so against all the prophets? How come every single time we send someone to save them, they kill them? You guys remember the old uh, joke when the guy's sitting on the roof in a flood and a famine and a fire and the helicopter comes and says, hey, pick up the ladder. I'm waiting for God. You know, 10 minutes later, the boat comes by. Hey, jump in the boat. I'm waiting for God. And I don't know whatever the third one is. And I'm waiting for God. And he dies and he gets to heaven. And he's like, Lord, what? what? Why? I was waiting for you the whole time. He's like, boat, you know, plane, and the people. I was in all those, right? It was there the whole time. You just, you rejected what I sent to you. And I can't help but think about that we like sheep. I mean, the sheep story comes back. We're like sheep. We're, it's been in our DNA from the beginning. Yes, we were grafted into a bloodline. We can't just blame Israel. We can't just blame the Jew for being thick-headed. We Gentiles are equally thick-headed. And many of us today know who God is and what God's trying to do. And don't we do the same thing? We reject him openly. And we say, I don't see it. And so verses 24 through 29, as they try to have this uh, conversation with Moses... Moses was uh, in a situation, like I said, there was an argument between an Israelite and an uh, Egyptian, and Moses comes in and does what he has to do in his mind to solve the issue. And for that use of force, the Israelite says to him, who made you judge and jury over us? Who do you think you are, Moses? I saw what you did to the Egyptian. How dare you come among us and tell us what you're going to do? And so what happens to Moses in that situation? He had to flee, right? He has to flee. So guess what the theme of Moses is now? A foreigner in a foreign land. But nonetheless, is God going to use him? Yeah. How is God going to use him? He's going to speak to Moses in a burning bush. Now, it's a bush that burns, but is not destroyed. 
So that means that the presence of God is now once again available outside of Israel, outside of the temple, outside of the house of the holy, outside of the Ark of the Covenant is available, and God himself shows himself to be speaking to somebody other than Moses, right? And this time it is Moses, but I mean, he's been speaking for each time to different people. What does he want him to do? Go to Egypt, rescue his people, even though they don't understand, they need to be rescued. I think at that point, Egypt's basically just, the Israelites have dug in. They're the Hebrews still at that time. They've dug in. They're kind of living with things. But God's saying, look, I heard their prayers, and I've been working on it the whole time, and now I'm sending you back in. So Moses, the murdering Moses, now becomes another type of Christ. An opportunity to see someone being used by God to be a rescuer. I love the fact that Moses gets to be a chosen person of God. Now, I don't know about you and how bad the things you've done, but I, I think one of the beautiful things about baptism and testimonies, we all get to hear the testimonies of other people's lives. And I've heard people say, oh, it's such and such a testimony, so much better than mine, right? As though it's some kind of competition, some kind of level of like how bad or horrific our life was. To, it's not like that. Sin is sin, and the score is one, okay? All sin is the same and counts one. Blasphemy is the one that we really need to worry about because the, opp the opportunity for you to confess whatever your life is, is your life. And your life's going to resonate with people much differently than other people's lives. Everyone will speak to everyone in the body. Remember, deacons have a role, elders have a role, and we have a role. And he's saying, hey, look, Moses is no different than anyone else that I've used, but I want you to realize something, verse 37 through 39. I'm going to raise up one, a prophet like you from your brethren, this is the one who was in the congregation in the wilderness together with the angel who was speaking to him on Mount Sinai and who was with our fathers and has received the living oracles to pass on to you. Our fathers were unwilling to be obedient to him and rejected him, and they turned their hearts back to Egypt. So he tells them directly in the passage, from the very beginning, God promised you that he was going to send someone. So how can it be blasphemy that somebody else is coming if God himself said, someone else is coming, and he's coming from you, okay? The reality is they continue to struggle. They continue to not believe. And this is kind of the struggle that we have today. Isn't it the same struggle? We've been telling people and showing people and sharing with people from the very beginning, and yet people still struggle to believe. What do they ultimately reject? They reject the work of Jesus Christ on the cross to say that you have sin. Because of your sin, you're separated from God. And that story that you had is the same story that they had from the very beginning. And they continue, and they continue to do what? To see, oh, there's got to be something else in our history that will tell us something. He goes, okay, how about verses 40 through 50? What about the time Aaron took leadership while Moses was up on the hill? You want to talk about a failure to communicate? You want to talk about, remember in the beginning, Moses, the stuttering Moses told the Lord, are you sure you want me? Are you sure you want me? Isn't there one who's handsome and speaks well and the one that everyone says should be doing it? Who is the one that he said should, everyone should be doing it? Aaron, right? Aaron's supposed to be good. Well, what about the time Aaron had a chance to lead when Moses was up on the hill for 40 days on Mount Sinai getting the Ten Commandments? What does he come down to? He comes down to debauchery. He comes down to absolute pandemonium. He comes down to Israel losing control of their mind and bringing all their gold trinkets and putting them all together and melting them and actually facilitating idol worship and building a golden calf and dancing around and celebrating this golden calf and claiming this is who we worship now. Right? We talked about that. The first 3,500 that die in the Bible kind of recorded history are who? Those dancing around this golden idol. 
Who was their leader? Aaron. You guys have, people have been put in place and and people have been trying to do things from the very beginning and they've been failing us. They've been failing Israel from the very beginning and yet that does not stop God from moving. Every situation simply allows God to continue to move. He swallows them up, the ground opens up, he swallows those people up and then Moses says, those of you who are with me, come join me. And what does God do? He moves forward. He says, I understand David's desire to want to build a place for his father. I understand David's heart to say, let me build something that's beautiful. And then I understand Solomon's heart to say, you know, I have all things. I've been blessed with so much. I mean, Solomon has mines of gold, mines of silver, mines of rubies, mines of diamonds, 750 concubines, 1,500 wives. I mean, so Solomon has it all, right? And he's already said vanity upon vanity. So, but Solomon says, here's something that I can do. I can build this great temple for the Lord, And I understand in their minds how ultimately that made total sense. But when I'm telling you that it's all going to be destroyed, let's see, so AD 33, Jesus dies. So this is probably 33 through 35, maybe AD 37. What happens in AD 70? Complete destruction. There's no temple. Like, they're not going to a temple today and worshiping. They're worshiping at the foundation, the concrete block of what was left of the temple as the Romans burned it to the ground. So even what they were thinking about, even what they didn't understand, even though they're missing the point by a mile, it would have happened either way. But they said, no, this place that Solomon built, this is where God resides in the Holy of Holies. I love how the Lord responds to simple Stephen. I mean, like I said, one of the most power defenses I've ever seen. This is uh, verses now 48 through 50. However, The Most High does not dwell in houses made by human hands, as the prophet says. Heaven is my throne, and the earth is my footstool for my feet. What kind of house would you build for me, says the Lord? Or what place is there for my rest? Was it not my hand which made all these things? Now Stephen's going after him once again, guys. Stephen, man, Stephen's so impressive. It's like I always hear people talking about amazing people in the Bible. And this guy, this one chapter wonder, this one message wonder, this one 50 verse defense of the Bible, it's just, it's amazing to me. It's just too powerful. It's just, it's too clear. It's too concise. How dare you think you make a place where God lives? How dare you say that God can only be for Israel in Israel in the temple? How narrow is your scope? That he made this place. And wherever God is, is holy. Going back to the burning bush. What did he tell Moses during his time with him, during the burning bush? Remove your flip-flops. Right? My flip-flops, yes. Remove your flip-flops. For the ground for which you stand on is holy. Church, wherever God is, is holy. So... Is God here? This building is more than just a building. Wherever two or more are gathered, and that's an interesting conundrum that I hear people part. Well, now that me and you are together and we're praying, two or more are gathered. Okay, am I not with the Spirit of God? Okay, so by default, it's me plus the Spirit of God whenever I pray. Time out. That's two. Okay, my Spirit... And the Spirit of God. So whenever two or more are gathered, I stand on a holy place. You sit right now in a holy place. 
We are a holy nation. We are under this line of authority, right? Priests. Do any of you feel like priests? I don't feel like a priest. Do any of you feel like pastors? Sometimes I don't feel like a pastor. Yet he says, where you are with me is holy. Take your shoes off. Think about who I am, right? It's not just that giving a tithe to God is a good thing or a bad thing, but lying to God, if we learned anything, right? This is a bad thing. Because just as loving as God is, he's holy and he's just. To make me this little temple and this little building, seriously, in the scope of my view of the earth, you made me this? And you want me to reside in this? This is my footstool. I'm, I'm, I'm above all this. I made this for you. This is a representation of my love for you. Don't tell me what your representation. I'm not in a box. I'm everywhere. And wherever my believers are, I am too with them. Now, I'm going to save next week because I do want to get to communion, and I think that's more than long enough. 11 feels good. I'm going to save next week for you, but I can tell you this. Their response to Stephen is not only drastic, but I think it's indicative of kind of the nature of where the world is going. It's hostile. Okay? And I want you to know about this. As we kind of prepare ourselves for communion and do some different things right now, and I take a different... Next week is important. Next week would be a good time for you to start thinking about inviting someone to church and kind of just reminding ourselves, we have work to do because the world that we're living in is no longer not just not nice to us. I believe the world is getting hostile towards us. And next week, when you see the response of how they responded to this final defense of faith, I'm not, I'm not, blasph I'm not blaspheming Moses. Moses was just like every other patriarch, failed but nonetheless used by God. I'm not blaspheming God. This is God himself who's speaking these things. I'm not blaspheming the law. The, before the law was even there, God was working in people from the very beginning. I'm not blaspheming any part of the temple. The temple, this thing you, you recognize as being so holy, the temple is going to be completely destroyed. You don't even know what's in front of you. And without a temple, God was still moving. God was still working. And God was still showing himself to people. He was, he is, and forevermore will be. And you guys think of yourself as being so high and so lofty. And next week, he's going to get it. And I want to invite you back next week because verses 51 through 60 tell us that not only does Stephen get it, but he gets it in a way that sets precedent for the rest of those prophets of God who will hold fast. It's not guilty or not guilty. Church, it's the phrase, step forward, my good and faithful son, that Stephen wanted to hear. Okay? We're all guilty. You, me, all of us, we're all guilty. Let's get past guilty or not guilty. If God allows us the privilege to represent him in the world we live in today in any way, shape, or form, when that opportunity comes, I think what Stephen would have wanted to tell you is the Bible verse that I've been saving for you the whole time. There is a Bible verse that speaks directly to how you should consider a response to when the attack comes. It's coming. If it hasn't come, it's on its way. And if you're in the middle of it right now, then I pray right now specifically that this verse would be a major source of encouragement for you. And then we'll get to communion. Mark 13, 11. Mark 13, 11. I'll read NIV because those are the Bibles that we leave for you guys. So Mark 13, 11. 
Mark's considered to be the main book of the New Testament. It's considered to be the cornerstone of the Gospels. So this passage has been around for a long time and been significant. Verse 11, whenever you are arrested, okay? Not if you are arrested. Whenever, multiple times. Each time that you are arrested and accosted and accused and brought to trial, do not worry beforehand about what to say. But just say whatever is given to you at the time, for it is not you speaking, but the Holy Spirit of God. Church, it's coming. And when it comes, if your thought is, I need to get ready, you're in big trouble. You will never be ready to give a defense like that if you know no matter what you say anyways, they're not going to believe anyways. The only way you can pour hot coals upon their head is to fall back to the Spirit of God that says, how do we fight our battles? We fight our battles in prayer, right? The next time someone comes up against you, the next time you feel that attack coming, you feel that dog dander flying on the back of your neck, they cut you off, and you feel that, fall back to your position of strength. Your position of strength is to hold fast in the Word of God. Father, they don't know what they're saying. They don't know what they're doing. You win the battle. You speak truth in this situation, and then you allow whatever the Spirit of God has to come forth to speak. For just as much as I spend my time and energy in a week to maybe prepare a message, I can tell you this. Half of that time is spent driving around the building and driving around the town and just turning my radio off and listening and asking God, what does that mean? How can I share that with them that they will understand that from rock bashing Moses to cheating David to, you know, whatever one you look at in the Bible, they've all failed. They've all struggled and that you used every single one of them because Jesus is God. God is Jesus. The spirit of God is working in them and he came to rescue in a foreign land from the beginning and they didn't understand him. And let's be honest, does Israel understand him yet? Even with all the signs? No. But does that stop them from being his people? No. Because love is not contingent on what you do. If it is, it's not love. Right? I birth my kids with my child and I raise them in such a way that I hope one day that the love that I give them unconditionally will be returned one day. Right? I told you this is my understanding of... Uh, um, how, God, how God's using this um, condition, like, has God known that there will be some who believe and some that don't believe? No, he loves unconditionally, and whether they believe or they don't believe, he, it does no bearing on that. He loves. He loves. We sin. He loves. We sin. He loves. And God will continue to use flood and famine and misfortune and even our enemies. Pharaoh's daughter... She raises Moses. I mean, how many times in time? You're so worried about all these other people. God's been using donkeys to speak. God can use anyone and anything. He can use the worst pastor on TV today that's speaking absolute blasphemy. God can still use that person to speak his truth. How do I know that? Because he's used his enemies to speak the truth before. We got to be careful about what we know and what we understand and how much influence that has on us because his ways are higher than ours, Right? His thoughts are higher than ours. It doesn't mean we shouldn't know. It doesn't mean we shouldn't have a good defense. We should. But we always want to keep the main thing the main thing. What is the main thing? Go. 
make, baptize, teach, anything that takes us away from that, regardless of how good that thing is, Mary and Martha principle, good and better. We can get the dishes, we can get the cupcakes, we can get the silverware, we can, or we can sit at the feet of Jesus. Someone else can get the cupcakes. Someone else can get the dishes. Someone else can get the silverware. Why? Because there's things that are just better for us to do. Right? We always want to seek the best thing that we can do to build the kingdom of God. God has been doing it. God will continue to do it. And God wants you to know something. Whether you fail him, whether you don't fail him, he is the supreme power and he is the th- supreme authority. And Romans 8 promises us, even in your failure, God uses all things for his glory. So as we sit here today and as we prepare ourselves for next week, I want you to realize something that no matter what they do to Stephen, and we're going to talk about it quite a bit next week, no matter what they do to Stephen, they can't do one thing. It's been appointed for you to be born. It's been appointed for you to die. And God already knows the beginning from the end. But the one thing they can't do is stop that seed of your life being put in the ground. And Stephen's about to drop the seed of faith next week at the foot of his arch enemy. Better than any Marvel comic, better than any TV show out there, his actual living, breathing enemy. Another young man just like him. For just as Stephen is a young, up-and-coming, early-on-in-the-church guy, there's another guy who's against the church, who's heck-bent on destroying the church, and he is going to be part of that next week and the seed that will fall at his feet. Church, when the Lord scatters the seed, he doesn't destroy the church. He grows the church, right? we got to be really cautious about thinking that we got the seed, and we are the seed, and we protect the seed. No, that's not what the seed was meant for. Go and plant. Go and throw, and let the Spirit of God water and grow as needed. Your worries and my worries will never stop us, and never has affected the fact that God planned on grafting us in from the very beginning. We're grafted into something that we didn't have anything to do with. And from that, and because of that, God has been in motion from the very beginning of time, which I don't think is millions of years. Another thing I want to encourage you, if you don't know what you're saying, then don't say it, okay? The the account of the church is probably 2,000, 4,000 years old. Maybe there's 6,000, 8,000 years worth of history in the Bible. Let's be careful about talking about what we don't know. Let's just talk about what we do know. Because the person who is there is the one who's trying to talk. So on behalf of all of us who have something to say and have done the research so that we feel empowered to say it, let's just hold that. And instead, let's just speak what he says. And let's let the truth of what God says and the person who says, I was here, okay, I made this, and let me tell you how I did it, let's just hold fast to that. And then we can agree to disagree on a lot of other things, but in the meantime, the way that we go and that we make and that we baptize is in the unity of what God's word says. For me, if you're asking me, I stand... I stand accountable to God's word. If you can show me and I can show you something that God's word clearly says, then that's the accountability that holds us together. That's the accountability is the glue that holds us united in Christ. If we get away from God's word and we get to our own opinion and our own understanding, then just like the Sanhedrin who thought they figured it all out, you could be fully convinced and fully wrong. Amen? I don't, I'm not asking you to be fully convinced. I'm asking you to be fully committed to God's word. That's different because there's going to be things you're fully committed to that you don't understand. There's things that I don't clearly understand. Like I said, the Trinity is great. You know, water, steam, and ice. But we're still talking, where in my life am I going to get the Trinity? All I have is the dual nature of my nature is my spirit and God's spirit. That's two, but a third, 
a conscious, you know what I'm saying? It's just, it's beyond. It's okay. Let there, let there be things beyond our understanding. Because he said, my ways are not your ways, nor are my thoughts your thoughts. I'm going to pray, and I'm going to invite uh, those helping me serve communion to come forward. And I just want to thank you guys for staying committed to a long message and remind you, we have work to do, church. Dean and Connie, you want to come up? Rich and Joyce, you want to come up? Church, we have work to do. It's not going away. And just like Stephen, our job is not to run and hide or make excuses for it. Our job is to hold fast and in prayer, invite the Lord in to speak truth to whatever that situation. If it's your job, it's your marriage, if it's a relationship you're in, if it's something where you're standing under some form of accusation, whether it's true or false, I want you to realize something. It's okay. Because if you're a follower of God, it's coming. Matter of fact, in many ways, it's mandated. And if you're a follower of God and it's never happened, that's an interesting place to be too, because it would seem like with Stephen, all he was doing was minding his business, feeding widows, what does that have to do with the Sanhedrin? Don't they have other things to do? And yet, no, if you're doing something for the kingdom of God and it's growing, it's going to come in your way. So let me pray and prepare our hearts for communion and ask the Lord to continue to use this message. Father God, I thank you for this morning. I thank you for the opportunity that a passage like this reminds us that from the very beginning, literally, Stephen just walked us through from the very beginning, from the birth of the church, when none of us were even here to know what was going on, Father, that you have made your fingerprints so clear. And that any person who's willing to look with the power of the Spirit of God, whose job is to provide the, the truth, to be able to see the truth in it, it is so clear what you were prepping people for and what you were trying to show them and how you actually worked with people. And I pray for today, Father. I pray for the church. I pray that the spirit of confusement or being kind of not sure about things would just go away, Father, that the smoke would clear and we would have absolute clarity when it comes to realizing to be all in for the Spirit of God, to be all in for your word, to be all in as a follower of Christ, it's going to come with the tax. And when it comes, it's okay. Just as Mark said, Father, we're going to fall back and we're going to hold fast and we're going to invite the Spirit of God into our lives to speak the truth that you need those people to hear. And then you, Father, you, the great, powerful, sovereign authority, Father, can then speak the truth that people so desperately need to hear. I pray for those hardened hearts, for those hardened ears, for those calloused ears that are out there, for the people in our very lives that continue to fight and run away from you, Father. I pray that today, this week, somehow this hour, Father, that victories would be won in the name of Jesus, that those walls would begin to fall. And if there's anyone in this building today, Father, even someone listening online in the future now, who didn't know that Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life, that didn't know that from the very beginning you signed it, you sealed it with your blood, Father. I pray that this morning would be the opportunity to stop and profess and confess the name of Jesus and invite him in to receive him, the forgiveness of their sins, to be cleansed and to be made a child of the Most High. Father, may everything we continue to say and do this morning bring honor and glory to you and through your son, Jesus Christ. Amen. We're going to do communion at this time, and I just want to ask you if you could come down one side left and come down one side right, and then if you guys could all kind of return through the middle, that would be great, and uh, we'll be here to serve communion with you at this time.
love so amazing. Love so amazing. He's Jesus Messiah. The name of all names. The blessed are being passed out. I know I talked about this morning about deacon ministry and I can't help but think about what a blessing it is when I take this in that the fact that there's a couple that's been providing communion for this church for 15, 20 years. I don't know how long it is, but this simple little element that this couple has made a commitment to provide us with every week is so powerful. And yet they like this bread. They kind of remain in anonymity. They just want to do the work that the Lord has given them, and they want to be faithful. And yet I think about each week, it's like, I asked her last week, where does the bread come from? You know, it tastes so good. It's not just bread, right? Like it's, this is the Lord. I get to take in the Lord. I get to, I get to remind myself. I'm not doing this by myself. 
You're not fighting this by yourself. We're fighting this together. And this simple little structure, this little element, right? We take the elements, literally, it's an element. This little element that we're about to place in our mouth somehow reminds us that we're more than conquerors through Christ, right? Through Christ. I'm not asking you to do this on your own. I'm not asking you to invite your neighbors to the church. I'm not asking you to recruit or build the church or evangelize on your own. I know that seems overwhelming. And there are definitely some of us that it's more comfortable for talking to strangers. But church, we have no choice. Stephen had no choice. He had a choice, but as a follower of God, he knew he had no choice. For such a time as this, the Lord has put me in front of these people to proclaim boldly the truths of God. I'm going to hold fast. I'm going to open my mouth. And I'm going to speak. And I'm going to do it in the name above all names. And he who strengthened me. And they took this little piece of bread before he was crucified. And they broke it. And he said, each time you do this, each time you take and eat this, do this in remembrance of me until I return. can a murderer like Moses stand before God as one of his? How can any of us stand before a holy God as one of his? One of the ways we stand is because of the blood that was shed for us. Now saying blood in the church today has become a very unpopular phrase and some churches will actually go as far as they possibly can to not say sin, to not say Jesus, to not say blood. But church, who are we? What are we if we don't have this? For without the remission of sin, without the blood being shed, there is no forgiveness of sins. We're all dead in our sins if we don't have this. And each time we get a chance, once a month, to place this simple element in our mouth, we're reminding ourselves. Romans 8, say it, speak it, and hold fast to it. There is no condemnation for those in Christ. This is the redemption of our condemnation. This price that was paid for you and me means you have the right to speak to your neighbors, to invite them to church, to invite them to faith, and to share boldly like Stephen did the defense of God that is in you each time you do this. And when they gather around the table, they remind themselves, do this until I return. Do this in remembrance of me. Father God, this morning, I just thank you for the opportunity to hold fast to that which was true 2,000 years ago, that which will be true 2,000 years from now, and Father, to that which will be true when time itself has come to an end. For you have placed us in time. You are outside of all these things. You are omnipotent. You are all-knowing. You're all-powerful. And yet we, your jars of clay like Stephen, simply want to do the work that you've placed before us. Father, I pray that today in the name of Jesus, every believer in here would feel a sense of empowerment to realize who they are in Christ, that each one of them can go from deacon to pastor if they simply would hold fast when the opportunity that you present to share and invoke the name of Jesus into their lives, into their situations. May we, may we not run from, may we not be fearful of, may the term guilty or not guilty not even be a potential question or answer in our heart, simply the concept that I want to step forward into, well done, my good and faithful servant. 
Father, we thank you for the morning and what your son Jesus Christ has made. If there's anyone, like I said, in this building today who doesn't know, we invite them to come forward, stay afterwards, and to not leave this place until they know that Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. We thank you for it all. We do it all in your son's precious and holy name. Amen. God bless you guys. Have a beautiful morning, a beautiful afternoon. Every blessing you pour out, I'll turn back to praise. When the darkness closes in, Lord, still I will say, Blessed be the name of the Lord. Blessed be your name. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Blessed be your glorious name. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Blessed be your name. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Blessed be your glorious name. You give and take away. You give and take away. My heart will choose to say, Lord, blessed be your name. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Blessed be your name. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Blessed be your glorious name. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Blessed be your name. Blessed be the name.